So I'm going to divert you a bit as you're probably heading to Proverbs. Uh, Turn with me to Mark chapter 10, and I want to uh, introduce our topic by looking at a story that happened in the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 10. Um, so it'll be a familiar story, but uh, we're going to talk about finances today. Uh, really, Lord willing, finishing up our our mini series in Proverbs on finances and financial wisdom. And uh, I want to introduce that topic by reading to you a story that you're familiar with. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. If you want to follow along as I read it. Uh, and as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And I love this, verse 21. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Okay, so he's gone, right? And Jesus, verse 23, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished at this point. And said to him, then who can be saved? Okay, let's just stop right there for a minute. Um, What is, it's a tragic story. And Jesus' point is that it is hard for people that enjoy prosperity in this life to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the point. But he goes further. He says, it's easier for a camel, big animal with a tall neck, usually a hump or two on the back. We rode camels in Jordan a couple years ago. It was quite interesting. Um, Big animal. It is easier for that animal to go through a what? The eye of a needle? Which means Jesus is saying, what? It's impossible. 
Now, you've probably heard some teaching that the eye of the needle was a gate in the city and the camel had to kind of crouch down to get under it. And that, that's actually not Jesus' point here. I don't know if that's historically true or not, but whatever if that's true or not, that's not Jesus' point. Because the disciples conclude, they're not like, oh, so you're saying we have to strip away everything and trust you. No, that's not what they conclude. They conclude, then who can be saved? They took it as it's impossible. You're telling us that it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I'm not a rich man. I'm not a rich girl. You know, that's those guys that live over there somewhere. But we understand, men and women, that in this culture, in this context, that we are all, we, we all qualify based on this text of what it means to be wealthy. And Jesus says, it's impossible. Or excuse me, the disciples say it's impossible. And Jesus agrees with that. Verse 27, looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible. And then just just let this phrase just hit you, okay? But not with God. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. So there's two things I want you to see from this. The first is wealth, money, and prosperity can be a huge hindrance to salvation. Okay? That's why Jesus talked about money so much. That's why the Proverbs are full of information and wisdom about money. This is, guys, this is one of the, 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 this is one of the amazing threats to a person believing the gospel, especially in a prosperous, a prosperous country like ours. But there's a second point. If you are a Christian, and if you have trusted in Christ, I want you to see that that took a miracle to do. Because it's impossible that you or I, in the prosperity that we enjoy, according to Jesus, that's impossible from a human perspective that we would come into the kingdom of God. But God has worked what is impossible for us, but not impossible for him. A miracle of regeneration in each one of our hearts, of those of us that have trusted in Christ. And I just want to, I want to just point that out to you today. You, you probably already know that, but I just want to remind you of that, how amazing that that is. And, and, I, and I say that because as we conclude our study on money and wealth in Proverbs we need to look back and remember what prosperity and money and wealth can do and does do apart from that work of regeneration. Right? Remember we've talked about the parable of the sower and the soils and how the deceitfulness of riches can choke the word so that a person falls short of saving faith. And that's exactly what happened here, right? 
Everything was going great till Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. And this is a guy that kept all the commandments and did great. Jesus didn't challenge him on that. He said, there's one thing that's the problem. So with that in mind, as we can be thankful to the Lord and also just just focusing afresh on the threat that prosperity and money and wealth can be to the gospel, uh, let's turn back to Proverbs and uh, let's um, jump back into our study on uh, wealth and money. And what I want to do, uh, it's been several weeks. Uh, didn't you appreciate Jack's series on spiritual warfare? Wasn't that good? Um, so praise the Lord for that. And I hope that that's uh, been an encouragement to you and a blessing. Those of you that missed that, you uh, jump on the website, download the audio. You can email Jack or email one of our secretaries here, and they can get you the notes if you missed that. But, um, you know, Jack, Jack is in a, a great position to talk about that topic because of their involvement in a third world country where they... Uh, a Buddhist country where they see spiritual warfare more clearly uh, sometimes than we do. Um, so appreciate that. Get the series if you missed that. Um, so where have we been thinking back a few weeks now to Proverbs on money and wealth? Uh, just by way of review, if uh, you've missed some of this uh, or if, like me, you've slept a bit since then and you had to go, I had to go back and look at what I told you because it's been long enough. So... Um, Principle number one that we looked at regarding finances. We talked about giving to God first. Remember that? Proverbs 3, 9, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will overflow with new wine. Uh, we see that same truth taught in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week we set aside uh, to give back to the Lord uh, out of our Abundance out of what God has provided to us. 2 Corinthians 9 talks about uh, giving cheerfully, not under compulsion, um, but uh, freely, cheerfully. Um, giving in the New Testament is, is always free. It's, all, it's always volunteer giving. There's no compulsory giving in uh, the Bible other than when we're giving to Caesar, we're giving to the government in, in a tax form. Um, but when we think about what the Proverbs says about money, what the Bible says about money, principle number one is if everything belongs to God and he gives us everything we have, we honor that, we recognize that by giving back to God first, um, as the scripture commands us. Second principle we saw, this is again review, looking at uh, several weeks ago, wisdom and godliness are more valuable than money. And, and this is this really connects back to that encounter in Mark 10 with Jesus and the rich man. Because if you think about it, why was the rich man unwilling to give up what he had to follow Jesus? Why was he unwilling to do that? Okay, so that's what he worshipped? What's that? Okay, he was afraid. And I like that. Worship, okay. Worship and fear go together. So... Expand on that. Why, why might he have been afraid to give that up? Well, and follow Jesus, so his faith wasn't uh, sufficient to overcome his wealth. Okay. You know, maybe he wasn't, wasn't secure of the unknown. Yeah, that's good. And, and, you know, money has several attractions. One is uh, you can buy things you like. And that's kind of fun, isn't it? Right? Just buy things you like. That's just kind of fun. And that's why we enjoy it, because it's kind of fun. There's another threat, though, and that is money 
gives us the illusion of security. And I say illusion because, I mean, if, if you have money and you have a medical expense, a medical thing come up, well, guess what? You can go get good medical care. And uh, if, you, uh, if you have a, an emergency and your car breaks and you have money, well, you can go fix it. And you can go get a new car if you want in some cases. So it, it's not that money doesn't provide some level of security. Certainly it does. But it's an illusion and that money can't provide you with security that is ultimate. Or security that really, truly protects you and meets your needs. And that's why it ultimately is an illusion. Uh, it tricks us because it does do some things. But then when we start to put more and more of our ultimate hope and our ultimate trust, we find that, you know what, it doesn't matter if I've got a whole bunch of money in the bank when my spouse dies. Because that money can't help me with that pain I feel in here, right? And there, there are things in life that, that money cannot help us with. So that's, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think part of the rich man's problem was he was... He was valuing what money could do for him more than what Jesus could do. Do you see that? And because he valued what money could do more than what Jesus was offering him, he went away. He went away saddened. He went away grieving because he couldn't have Jesus plus his wealth. And, and just for sake of clarity, if you're a new Christian or maybe that was a new story for you, Jesus isn't saying if you're going to follow him, you've got to go clear out your bank account. What, what he's illustrating there is that in order to follow Christ, you have to abandon every other hope, every other pursuit, every other uh, false refuge, if you will, and put all of your hope and all of your trust in Christ alone. And Jesus, because he's God, knew his heart. He knew that. He was still hanging on to his wealth, and that's why he called him to repent of that particular area of his life. Okay? He's, not, he's not putting conditions on faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. He's merely illustrating that faith alone means we abandon all other hopes to trust in Christ. But that gets to what Proverbs says in chapter 3, verse 13, that really wisdom and godliness that come in that relationship with Christ are more valuable than money. And some people are not willing to give that up or, or see that that's really true. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding for its profit is better than the profit of silver and its gain more than fine gold. And this, especially for our, our teenagers and our young people here, it is so important that as you grow up and as you're thinking about these things right now, that, that you see how much more valuable wisdom and godliness is rather than stuff, rather than money. Um, especially as you go into the workplace, as you go to college or the military or whatever you do, um, there's a value system, right? There's a value system, and, and old people, would you agree with me? There's a value system out there that pushes in upon our young people, and that value system says make as much as you can, Live life as big as you can. And that's what they hear, right? And the Bible is saying, no, that's an illusion. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That is the most valuable thing you can have. And, and money and stuff are, are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. 
but there's something far more valuable. You remember what, you remember what um, the psalmist says in Psalm 119? He says, I have more insight than all my teachers. I understand, and, and then the, the psalmist, probably a young man, the psalmist says, I understand more than the aged. Now, that's a kind of a, a nice, respectful way of saying, I know more than those old people do. Because he knows the Lord and because he knows something of his wisdom and walking in that. Uh, And so, teenagers, as you read the Bible, look at how often, especially in Proverbs, the Bible says you can have all this or you can have wisdom. And let me tell you why wisdom is more valuable to you. Number three, the third principle we've seen in weeks past in our study is that your treasure reveals your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart. That's that spiritual part of you, the real you. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And uh, as I was told uh, when I was in seminary by a very wise professor, uh, that there are two theological documents that all of us have. Two theological documents. It's not your Bible. It's not Grudem's Systematic Theology or something like that. It's your day planner, your Google calendar, and your checkbook. Or for those of you under 30, uh, you know, your app that shows you how much money you have and where it's being spent, okay? Um, checkbook is so 1995, isn't it? So anyway, um, yeah, because those, those reveal where am I spending my time? Where am I spending my money? That reveals what? What does it reveal? My heart. It shows me what I love. It shows me what's important to me. And so those two materials are theological documents in the sense that they diagnose, they show me what's going on. That's why Solomon says, guard your heart, because from that flow, every issue that happens in life. So so what we do with money is important in a primary sense, as we looked at in Mark 10, it's also important in a diagnostic sense, because you can, in a sense, trace the money back to find out what's important to you in your heart. Number four, learn to be content. Uh, man, we could spend a whole series on this. Um, God, we understand from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 3, God will provide for our needs. And God calls us to be content with his provision. Contentment is learning to be satisfied with what God supplies. That's contentment. It's learning to be satisfied with whatever God supplies. And if we look around the room, we understand that there are vastly different levels of provision and care. God does not provide for us in the exact same way or through the same means or through uh, the same context. But as the hymn says, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. And I think we could go around the room and say, you know what? God has been faithful to provide for our needs. Sometimes we think there are things that he ought to have provided and then we find Subsequent to that, that we really didn't need that, did we? So he provides for our needs. And contentment is learning to be satisfied with what God supplies. As I learned from my childhood pastor in confirmation class, talking about the Ten Commandments, be content with what you have. Don't want yourself to death. That was his summary of the Ninth and Tenth Commandments. Avoid the money-centered life syndrome. Uh, this was I, I learned this from... Uh, a man uh, named Jim Rickard, uh, who I've mentioned uh, several weeks ago, has a ministry that uh, does financial 
um, biblical studies and whatnot. He also does pastor's income taxes. So I'm very thankful for him. He has helped us with our income taxes all of these years of ministry that we've been involved in. But the money-centered life syndrome is, is when we forget that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're supposed to do all the glory of God. And money needs to submit itself to that grand goal. We don't want to turn it around and make the pursuit of wealth or the spending of wealth or the acquisition of wealth to be the ultimate end. You know, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we try to make more, right? That's not what the text says. Um, and I found it helpful, uh, again, based on Mr. Rickard's material, just to stop and ask the question, is this a need or is this a want? Okay, and that brings us to kind of where we left off last time, and I think we got a little bit into this, but this will be good review. Uh, number five, follow a godly work ethic. Follow a godly work ethic. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here because we did a whole section on this way back in those early chapters of Proverbs, the contextual parts. Um, but we remember that God calls us to work with integrity. Do not sacrifice your integrity to gain wealth. That's the point. Proverbs chapter 20, and uh, we've got a lot of verses to look up. Some of them will be up on the screen for you, and you're welcome to either follow along if you like to be quick on the Bible, quick on the app there and to see it, or you're also welcome to just listen, and I'll read each one of these to you. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 10. Differing weights and differing measures, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. Now, this has nothing to do with when you go to the YMCA and you're looking for two 40 pound dumbbells and you can't find the match, right? There's a 40 and a 30 and a 25 and a. No, it's, it's, it's not differing weights like that. What, what does this refer to historically, contextually? What does it refer to with differing weights? We'd be weighing out items for sale. Right. Right. Very good. So, in this culture, whether they were precious metals that were used in a monetary exchange, uh, whether it was a certain amount of wheat or barley or something you were selling, um, the scale, a weight scale, was a very important piece of the commerce system there because you would weigh things out, either you know gold pieces, silver pieces, or a certain amount of flour or barley, whatever you're doing, you would weigh it out and that would show, okay, you're getting what you expected in the transaction. And so a differing weight would be a form of theft where a person, you know, the, the label might say uh, five pounds, if we put it in American terms here, five pounds when in reality it was only three pounds or four and a half. And so you would shortchange the buyer in the transaction so that you could make a little more money having not sold exactly what you said that they were selling. So that's what it's talking about here. It's gaining wealth by deception. It's gaining wealth through some sort of sinful, ungodly practice. And, and notice, looking back at the text, differing weights and differing measures, both of them are what? A what? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, there are guys, there are times when when the Bible says, if you do this, this isn't just wrong or sinful. It's an abomination. That's very strong language. God hates this. So the Bible is saying God hates it. It's an abomination to him when we 
compromise biblical integrity in order to gain wealth in some way. And there are all, and we know this, um, many, you know, businessmen and women represented here, you guys have all had a diverse background of companies and experience and all, and, and you know, is this not the way of the world? I mean, this is, it's, it's hard even in an average company in America, even if it's something as basic as a fast food restaurant and all the way up the, the corporate chain of Fortune 500 companies where, Everybody's trying to find an edge. Everybody's trying to make a little more. Everybody's trying to be a little more efficient to increase the bottom line. And what that means is there are many, many, many corners being cut regarding integrity in order for the company to prosper. And, and again, young people, that's a challenge because, you know, your, your first job or when you're getting out there and you may recognize, you know what, if I play by the boss's rules and he wants me to pad the numbers a little bit, he wants me to, to fudge things a little bit. And you know what, that's the way to success. That's the way to get the promotion. And you will have to decide as a God follower, am I willing to do that? Would I compromise what I know God says in his word, so that I could please a boss or get a bigger paycheck or get that promotion. And old people talk to me. Does this happen? Does this happen in your experience? You come up with this in your careers? Okay. Um, so watch out for that. We also want to avoid, in terms of godly work ethic, we want to avoid an entitlement attitude. Now, now what is entitlement? An entitlement attitude says others should provide for me. Now, this is a huge problem. If, if my grandparents were here, we would not be having this conversation because their generation, th- this was frowned upon. This was a matter of shame in society. And we're not talking about, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, we're not talking about people who genuinely needed help either from the church or from the government. We're not talking about those people that genuinely need help. We're talking today about a culture of entitlement that says, I deserve for other people to give me something. And I just want to say flat out, we'll look at the verse here in a minute, that is not a godly attitude. That is not a biblical attitude, an entitlement mentality. Listen to Proverbs chapter 20, again at verse 4. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn. So what does he do? He begs during the harvest and has nothing. Now why does the sluggard not plow after autumn? Why? Why? Because he's lazy, but why else? Okay, well, that's, that's not the implication. The implication is he stops prematurely. Yeah, that's, that's the implication of this verse, is he's stopping ima- uh, prematurely. So, what happens? He knows somebody else will provide. Yeah, he, he, he knows somebody else will provide, or he's expecting someone else to provide. Um. And that's, that's frowned upon. That, that, that he's called the sluggard. And, and, and I'm, I'm here to tell you, maybe this is new. Sluggard is not a compliment in the Bible. It's not a... Yes, no, it's not like in baseball. So, so and I would just say to you, uh, grandparents, parents, great-grandparents, it, it is our job in light of the scripture, to train our kids, our grandkids, even our great-grandchildren in appropriate ways to recognize that the entitlement mentality of our culture is not honoring to God. And just because you can get away with it, 
Just because there is someone offering you a handout or who will provide for you if you don't work hard and do what you should to provide for yourself. Just because that's available doesn't mean it's right to take advantage of. And biblical integrity means I'm going to say no to those things insofar as I don't really need them and insofar as God has given me the grace and ability to work and provide for myself. We need to... We need to Again, that's, I could be a whole sermon series sometimes, and maybe, maybe it needs to be, but you, you understand what I'm saying. That this is something we have to fight because everything in the culture promotes this idea that you deserve for someone else to do it for you. Number three, work hard. Uh, we, we've talked about this over and over and over again. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways. Um, so working hard is part of a godly work ethic. Don't be tempted by shortcuts. This is interesting. Um, and again, this goes right to the, the entitlement mentality. If entitlement mentality is a big part of the culture, a, a culture of corner cutters, can I say that? A culture of corner cutters? Say that ten times fast. Um, my goodness, if you can cut a corner, do it. And, and, here's, and here's the temptation, guys. Other people in sports, in business, in all realms of life, will get ahead of you by compromising their integrity, by cutting corners. They will get ahead of you. And you will look and say, what happens to the man of righteousness? Right? What happens to the person of integrity? They don't get the promotion. They don't move up in the team or the context. They don't get the pay raise. Because this is so normal today. And yet a believer is somebody who says what? I have to obey God. Remember what Paul says in, in the Colossians to the Colossians is that we do our work as for who? As for the Lord. Not to please men, but to please the Lord. So we, don't, we can't be tempted by shortcuts. Chapter 28, uh, verse 19. He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. The guy who says, but it's more fun to play video games all day than to till my field. Well, guess what? Of course it's more fun, but it will not go well with you. And you will pay the price. And it will come back to hurt you. And finally, don't take advantage of others. Just back up a couple of verses Chapter 28, verse 8. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. But the, the point of the verse is don't take advantage of others in order to gain wealth or prominence. Those are all factors of a godly work ethic. Okay? Number, was it six or seven we're on? Wisely manage your money. Let's get really, really practical here. Listen to how the Proverbs are so practical with this. Wisely manage your money. Uh, Number one, live within your means. Live within your means. This is all over Scripture. Listen to 21 verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. That's a great verse um, to put on a sticking note and, and just, just stick it right on top of your debit card. 
I mean, do that if you need to. Um, everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Um, hasty purchases. Uh, impulse buying, we might call it that. And the Bible calls us to not just buy whatever we see or like, but to live within our means. And this is where a budget can be really helpful. Um, A budget is just a tool to help you to know um, what your needs really are and how much of your income needs to be allocated for those needs. Um, and uh, I'm not going to do this, but if we were to go around the room and say, do you know where your money is going every month? If the answer is no, then it's going to be very hard to know if you're living within your means um, if you don't have some sort of handle on where that money is going. And a budget is not a scriptural command. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt have a budget. But a budget is a tool that can help you to obey clear biblical commands like living within your means, like saving. And other things like that. Um, I'm going to recommend some resources at the end here. Um, a, re, uh, a ministry that I have benefited from for years, uh, almost my whole Christian adult life, um, is a ministry called Crown Financial Ministries. How many know about Crown? Okay, and some of you are too young to remember Larry Burkett. He passed away many years ago, is now with the Lord. But he was uh, the man who started that. Just a a wonderful, godly guy who had a lot of training in finances. And, and back in the, in the 70s, he started writing books teaching the church what does the Bible say about finances. And if you've read a Larry Burkett book or you've taken advantage of resources on his website, I think it's just crown.org is his website, um, very, very helpful articles on uh, biblical principles of money, just like what we're talking about. Um, how do I get out of debt? Uh, you know, how do I make a budget? Um, you know, think, th- very practical tools that arise out of biblical principles. Um, so a budget can be helpful. And, and uh, Lisa and I, when we were uh, still engaged, we were exhorted to uh, craft a budget. In fact, I, find, I, think, I think for our premarital counseling, they made us actually come up with a budget for the first year of our marriage. You talk about humbling. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, this is, um, this is harder than we thought, right? And uh, but 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 that that has been good advice for us. That has always um, helped us to know where those things, where our money goes and gives us something of an idea of how we can honor God in that. So but living within your means, that that's the principle that we see here. Number two, being aware of debt, being aware of debt. Uh, Turn over to chapter 22, verse seven. I want you to see this. Be aware of debt. Now. This is one of those areas I have to be really careful about because I know there are different convictions in this room. And my name's Keith, and I want to stay friends with all of you. So um, I think I'm on mostly good terms with most of you, so that's good. Uh, I recognize uh, there are some of you that are going to say, you know what, debt is always wrong. Uh, There are some of you that might say debt is not wise but is allowable or useful in certain situations. And I don't, I'm not... I'm probably not going to settle that argument for you today, but I want to teach you what I believe the Bible teaches, and then you can figure out how to best honor the Lord in those principles. Okay, is that fair? Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7. Um, The rich rules over the poor, 
and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. What's that? What's that teaching? Yeah, Wes. Okay, if you get into debt, someone else is going to rule over your life. Now, now, let, let's just take a quick historical uh, footnote here. You understand that in this culture, uh, creditors borrowing was very different than it is today. I mean, they, they weren't they weren't giving out credit card applications to 18-year-olds on college campuses all over Palestine. Okay, we know that. Um, but we also understand that that there was. Um, well, will you know, because you know your New Testament, if you don't pay a person's debt, or if you don't pay the debt that you owe to a creditor, what can he do to you, according to Jesus in the Bible? He can throw you in prison, can't he? And, and I mean, that does happen sometimes in very unique situations in our culture, but, but mostly you're just going to ruin your credit and you're going to you know, have other bad things, bankruptcy, things like that might happen to you. So you understand, there's a really different culture here that the Bible is, is speaking to us through. But the principle is still the same. When we are in debt to somebody, that creditor has power over our life. We don't have freedom in certain areas as long as that relationship is in play. And it creates what the Bible calls bondage. Debt creates bondage. The Bible also teaches that we ought to fulfill our obligations with integrity. We need to fulfill our obligations with integrity. What does that mean? That means that you, if you have agreed to certain financial terms in the payback of a loan, you must do what you have said you will do. That's integrity. You must pay back according to the terms that you agreed to. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27. Do not withhold good from whom those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it to you when you have it with you. Uh, Now, that's a little bit different. That's not talking about um, being in debt. The principle there is when you know that God is obligating you to give in a certain situation or to provide in a certain situation, integrity means that you do it. You don't avoid it, even if you can get away with it. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe more to the point, in, uh, you don't need to turn there. Listen to Psalm 37, 21. I know you know this psalm, but this is one of those parts of the verses that we miss sometimes. Listen to Psalm 37, verse 21. The wicked... Uh, those of you that are turning there, I'll give you a second. Um, listen to this. The wicked does what? He kills people. He lies. He deceives. No, no. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. Now, again, just a, a modern day footnote. Do you know how many people in our American culture borrow money and they have no intention of paying it back? They haven't thought about it. They haven't counted the cost. They haven't figured out what's gonna, what's it gonna take. Is it, uh, is it even possible? Let alone, is it a wise purchase? And do we even need to be doing this? Do we even need this item? Um, but I want you to see this because this, this again, this is one of those things that challenges the mainstream thinking of the culture. 
the wicked borrow and don't pay back. And just because we might be able to get away with it, because we know what's acceptable, we know people will come in and and fix it, no one's going to throw us in jail for the most part, just because we can get away with it doesn't mean we ought to do it. Brothers and sisters, we are called to live by God's standard, not by the world's standard. And and it, it says something about the the integrity of our witness when in an area like this, we are living just like everybody else lives. So, Dave Hubbard, uh, question. Uh, the explanation of that is that really irritating commercial that there's a secret. Credit card companies don't want you to know. That's right. If you owe a whole bunch of money, you don't have to pay it back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, usually when an advertiser uses the word secret in an advertisement, they're trying to sell you something. Uh, so just keep that in mind. Number three, establish yourself before taking on larger financial obligations. This is really interesting. This, this, is, the, this is really going to the, the young newlyweds that are still in school or maybe they're, they're paying back college debt or they're, um, and, and they're like, I want, we want to buy our first house, right? And we can get a 0% uh, mortgage and uh, 0% down uh, mortgage. And um, listen, listen to the wisdom of this. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 27. I had not really appreciated this verse before, before studying. Verse 27, prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterward, then build your house. Now, culturally, what he's saying is, Obviously, if you want to build a house in this culture, there's a lot of outside work you have to do. A lot of clearing of the field and leveling of the land and all that sort of thing. But, but the principle is this. You shouldn't be trying to take on some big project, financially speaking or otherwise, until you've established yourself in the more basic ways. And so, you know, for example, if we apply this to, to you know, young newlyweds, we would say, you need to get a lot of your financial ducks in a row first and then maybe think about, you know, when it would be a good time to purchase that first house, for example. Um, so establishing ourselves first and also walk in wisdom. We want to avoid foolish financial decisions, such as putting yourself in a situation where you could not pay off debt. That's not wise. Or this, putting yourself in an upside-down situation. If you're not familiar with that term, that, that means when you owe more than the item is worth if you needed to sell it. Uh, that's not wise. So managing money, living within our means, being aware of debt. Uh, and again, you know, some of you are going to say, I don't think debt is ever right before the Lord. Okay, praise the Lord for that. Some of you are going to say, the Bible says debt is not wise. And uh, so we need to be very, 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 very careful. Uh, and that, that's fine, too. I think there's some Christian freedom that comes into that. But, but these are the principles. These, these are the static principles that we see in the Bible regarding debt. Related to that, beware of co-signing. Beware of co-signing. Y- young people, are you familiar with that? So, so let's, say, uh, let's say you want to you buy your first car, and you don't have enough money, so you go to a used car lot, and you meet Slick Sam. Okay. Now, Slick Sam, the salesman, uh, he doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care how much. He doesn't even care if you have a job, because if you have your eye on that vehicle or you have that your eye on that vehicle, he will make it happen. 
Okay. Now, the main way he's going to make that happen is he's going to help you. Now, I don't know if there's any used car salesman in the room. I'm not talking about you, of course. Um, But the way he's going to make that happen, uh, Slick Sam, the salesman, is he's going to say, oh, would your mom be willing to co-sign on the loan. So, so young people, what happens is if someone is going to give you a loan, they, have, they want to have some confidence that you have a means to pay it back, right? And because young people obviously have not established their credit and they usually don't have lots of savings or really good paying jobs, often a creditor wants a co-signer. So that's somebody who signs next to your line like mom or like dad or like grandpa Joe or whoever it is and they have better credit, they have better means, they're established, and, and, and Slick Sam the salesman knows that when you don't pay on your loan, and there's a pretty good chance that you're not, well, guess what? Then Grandpa has to pay. So he gets his money either way. He doesn't care. He just wants to sell you this car. Co-signing on a loan. Okay. Listen to what the Bible says about this. Did you know the Bible talks about this? Proverbs chapter 22, verse 26 Do not be amongst those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. Why? Verse 27. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Do you see that? What's the Bible saying? If you co-sign, if you get involved in a financial obligation, even if you're not the primary person getting the loan and they default on the loan, they will come after you. And if you don't have the means to pay, they will take the bet out from under you, which in this culture was part of what they could do. Um, So, and then with that, pay off a creditor quickly. Proverbs 6, verses uh, 3 to 5. Paying off a creditor quickly. You know, some of you may be saying, you know what, I've gotten myself into some really foolish debt and I'm trying to pay that off right now. Well, praise the Lord for that. That's a good thing to do. And the Bible teaches us that paying off debt, paying off a creditor quickly is a wise thing to do. Chapter 6, verse 3. Do this, my son, and deliver yourself since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself and inopportune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. You say, well, what's that in the context of? If you've given a pledge, chapter 6, verse 1 if you become surety for your neighbor or have given a pledge for a stranger. Same thing. The context is that of co-signing or, or somehow taking on a joint financial obligation. Uh, just a footnote on that. Um, if the Bible warns against co-signing, but it says that giving and being generous is a really good thing to do, you say, well, if you want to help out your grandson with his first car, or you want to help your son or daughter, that, that can be an, a, a wonderful, godly thing to do. But do it by giving and being generous. Don't do it by putting yourself in a situation uh, that is going to end up being detrimental. Uh, Number three, practice saving. Chapter six, verse eight. Uh, The ant, right, prepares her food in the summer, gathers her provision in the harvest. We've talked about that. So we don't need to do much on that. But wisely managing your money means we're practicing saving. And, and, And we need to talk about this, too. Think Biblically about interest. Let's think biblically about interest. Um, Here's what I believe the Bible to teach. 
okay? I believe the Bible teaches two things. Let me put them up there. Okay, are they there? Number one, it is sinful to take advantage of others in the name of gaining financial wealth. Okay, let me show you that. We read this verse a moment ago, but let me, let me put it in context now. Chapter 28, verse 8. <clears throat> he who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. That verse looks back to the Old Testament law that the Israelites were under. And there are verses in the Old Testament law that forbid taking advantage particularly of the poor in order to gain financial wealth because they are very easy many times to take advantage of. I mean, just just go down to the... Um, what's, what are the easy loan places? The, the payday loan. Okay, just, just go there and, and watch the people that are coming in and coming out of there. Uh, those are people that are easy to take advantage of because of their situation in life largely. And um, the Bible forbids taking advantage of those people. So when the Bible talks about uh, not, uh, like as, as in this verse, increasing wealth by interest and usury, gathering it from him who is gracious to the poor, it's looking back to those Old Testament verses that say, do not take advantage of a person, particularly a poor person, in order to benefit yourself. Okay? That's principle number one. Principle number two, we know this from Matthew chapter 25, and you don't even need to turn there because you, you, know, you know the story, don't you? Ten talents, five talents, one talent. The master leaves. Okay? Master comes back. What happened to the ten talents? Doubled it. What happened to the five talents? Doubled it. What happened to the one talent? He hit it. And Jesus said, well, that's okay because putting out your money at interest is sinful. Is that what he says? No, he actually gets angry with him and says, you wicked slave. And we also know from texts like Deuteronomy 23, verse 20, that it is wise to earn interest from legitimate sources. It's wise to do that. It's not unbiblical or sinful. It's wise to earn interest from legitimate sources. The difference is we have to differentiate what's a, what's a legitimate, godly place to do that versus an ungodly place. Okay? So that, that's what I believe the Bible teaches about interest. We want to avoid foolish pursuits as well, like gambling and lotteries. Uh, I had a friend in college that used to say a lottery is a tax on people who are bad at math. Um, and I just, I've just listed here uh, from one of my uh, uh, friends, Jim Neuheiser, in his book, Opening Up the Proverbs. I've mentioned that research before. He has a wonderful little section on gambling, and uh, I, I don't want to do a whole mini-series on gambling uh, this morning, although we could. Uh, but just just think about what the the whole gambling industry and people that get caught up in it and lotteries and things like that. Just think about that as it as it intersects with our Christian faith. I mean, first of all, it undermines a Christian work ethic by encouraging people to hope for wealth without working. And we've seen that that's clearly not a good thing to do. And that's what gambling and lotteries do. They promote hope in wealth that comes without working. And that's not good. Uh, it sounds good, but it's not good. It promotes irrationality, the odds of winning. This is the tax on people that are bad at math. Anybody with basic rudimentary math skills, just do the math. And you go, the, the slot machines 
have a huge advantage. The casino has a huge advantage over you. And they know how to let you win just enough times to promote a growth in that false hope in the wrong place. Uh, It's motivated by a greedy lust for riches. It exploits those who lose. That's interesting. Uh, Anybody, anybody like very knowledgeable of the gambling industry? Now you may be afraid to put your hand up. (laughs) No, 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 I won't do that. I was no. Here's what I was. I'm totally ignorant. I was amazed to do some research on the gambling industry and how it connects with crime, suicide. all sorts of societal problems. Those of you in law enforcement, I'm sure, understand this. Um, I've seen gambling destroy families in our counseling ministry here. Um, and and you, you just go, why would I want to even get close to that? Even, even if I'm just having fun, right? Even if I'm just having fun. Why would I want to contribute to that industry? Uh, harmful effects on society. It's, it's poor stewardship of God's resources. And it only has two incomes and both are bad. You lose which means you were a poor steward of God's resources, or worse, you win. You win just enough to grow your hope to do it again. So check out Jim, New- Jim Neuheiser's resources there. Um, and then finally, uh, we want to prayerfully invest for the future. We've talked about savings. Let's talk about investments for a moment. Proverbs 27, verse 23 Know well the condition of your flocks. Pay attention to your herds. Uh, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. Uh, what, what is he saying there? In, in this culture, your retirement, your investments, your livelihood was often in your livestock, wasn't it? I mean, you, you may have some money saved up, but really your means was a lot of times the cattle, which is why, you remember in Job chapter 1, when Job loses all his livestock? And, and you say, and his wife says, just curse God and die. And you're, Isn't that kind of harsh? I mean, that's kind of over the top. You know, maybe Mrs. Job was having a really bad day that day or something. But, but no, you understand that when, they lo- when Job lost all his livestock, that's, that's like the market crashing and your 401k zeroing out. That, that's, that's culturally what was happening. And many of you know that in that culture, you know, Job gets sick. He's got these boils. Mrs. Job thinks he's going to die. And she's left penniless and without a husband to provide for her. And her choices are probably prostitution, which is her only option. So that, that's why Mrs. Job is in that state of distress in, in chapter 2 there. But this is saying, know well the conditions of your flocks, know well the conditions of your herds. Why? Because that, that's, that's keeping an eye on your finances. That's staying on top of your means, if you will. Or chapter 28, verse 19, um, more to thinking about investing. He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty and plenty. So again, we're thinking about planning for the future. We're thinking about storing up for the future. We're we're sacrificing now so that we can care for ourselves uh, when we're unable to work. And then finally, an inheritance. I love this verse. And this is a challenge, I think, for us. I know it is for me. Chapter 13, verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance 
to his children's children. What does that mean? Translate that for me. His children's children are his grandkids. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Okay, so when we think about an inheritance, it is honoring to God to, to pass on something to your children and to your grandchildren. That's what this is saying. But remember, but remember the footnote, chapter 20, verse 21. An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. So what that means, what does that mean? It means parents, grandparents, when we think about blessing our children through an inheritance, we want to train them and make sure that they are mature enough to handle that inheritance. And how many, how many families have done exactly what, uh, 2021 has said not to do? An inheritance gained prematurely. An inheritance gained, uh, before the person is ready. And then they squander it and do it on full. I mean, that, that's the prodigal son, right? He takes the inheritance. He doesn't have the maturity to handle it. He goes and he squanders it in a short amount of time. And then he's penniless. So, yes, it is honoring to God to, to store up an inheritance to give to our children and grandchildren, but we want to do it in a way that makes sure that it is wise. One more thing here and we'll quit. Um, I'm going to recommend some resources, and I just I want to show you this because um, uh, there are lots of Christian financial helps out there. And I'm going to recommend... Uh, two of them. The one I mentioned, Larry Burkett, Crown Financial. Who's the other one? Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey. Okay. And I have some thoughts on, on both of those guys. Um, I, I, I talked to a guy who is trained both in Dave Ramsey's, Dave Ramsey's ministry and Crown Financial. Very insightful. This person that knows both programs really well. I'll tell you about it sometime. But just know this. For example, let's say Dave Ramsey. Okay. Great guy. Got, got some good advice. When you go to a source... For Christian financial wisdom, you need to have this filter in place. What is a clear biblical principle? That's a non-negotiable. You don't follow that, you're not honoring Jesus. Okay? A clear biblical principle. A second category, biblical wisdom for application. In other words, how do I take that clear biblical principle and apply it? And there may be 28 different ways that you do that. And these Christian financial people will help you to know what are some of the wise ways to apply biblical principles to those things. But just know there may be different, play, different ways to do it. And then there's this, outside the Bible, information, advice, and opinion. And turn with me in your Bible to the verse on mutual funds. Can you do that? Turn with me in your Bible to the verse on life insurance, whether you should do whole life, term, and all the other you know, universal, partial universal. There's all sorts of categories. It's not there. That's extra outside the Bible, extra biblical information. And sometimes we need to educate ourselves on that, right? In order to honor God with the biblical principles, we have to learn some of those other things to know, well, what is this investment vehicle actually doing? Will it honor the biblical principles that I'm trying to follow or will it not? But here's the thing, guys. Those three are in different dimensions of authority. Biblical principles are non-negotiable, thus saith the Lord, principles. Application is not. Application is not a thus saith the Lord. Like I said, there may be many ways to honor the Lord. And this is the furthest from the biblical information. And here's what I've found, and especially with some of the real popular guys today. Most of what they tell you is in this category. 
And I'm not saying it's not helpful. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying remember that this is not thus saith the Lord, even if it's if it's coming from a Christian financial person. Sorry, I didn't mean to leave you guys out. Static, thus saith the Lord. Application. How do I honor the Lord with the biblical principles, right? Okay. Outside the Bible information. This is authoritative. This is only semi-authoritative in the sense that there may be different ways to apply those biblical principles. This is not authoritative. But you may need to know something about a certain financial situation to know, am I honoring God with that? And, and what I found is most of the Christian financial ministries, this is what they're talking about most of all. So I'm saying that not because you shouldn't take advantage of those, but because don't 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 read. Oh, Dave Ramsey says and Dave, does Dave Ramsey have an opinion? He's got an opinion on everything. OK, like Dave Ramsey, Dave Ramsey never says, hmm. Well, you go this way or that way. It's always this is what you do. OK, and, and that's why he's so popular. But be careful. OK, make sure that when you take any of these guys and say, well, I'm going to do this because Dave Ramsey or Larry Burkett, make sure <laughs> you know what the difference between thus saith the Lord and application and other information. OK, we want to We want to major on what the Bible says. So here's some other uh, resources here. And uh, just pray that God would grant us grace to be good stewards of what he's entrusted to us. Um, Father, thank you for uh, time in your word, and we are grateful for the provision that you've provided for us. And thank you even more, Lord, for salvation, that though our hearts were impossible to save, uh, you reached out in Christ, changed our hearts, drew us to yourself so that we repent and believe in Christ. And we thank you for uh, the gift of salvation. And Lord, we do thank you for what you provided to us. We pray that we are good stewards of it, that we use it to honor you. Uh, and to honor gospel work, and that we would be good examples with what you've entrusted to us. In Jesus' name, amen.